Our great God, our Father, who loves us, who knows us each by name, who has ordained all our days, our good and great God, we give You thanks and praise for Your faithfulness and Your kindness. We praise You for Your wisdom that spread out the heavens and set the stars in place, that set the boundaries for the sea and carved the hills out of the earth. We praise You for Your wondrous plan of salvation, for freely and graciously choosing us from before the foundation of the world to be in Christ Jesus, for redeeming us through Your incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us on the cross, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, and for bringing us into Your new creation by the working of Your Holy Spirit. Oh, we pray, Lord, Give us grace and peace today. Shower Your gifts upon us. Help us to cast all our cares and anxieties on You. Strengthen our faith and grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that we may serve You more fully and faithfully. Today, Lord, we are gathered here to give You glory, to sing Your praises with gladness, to know joy unspeakable and peace that passes understanding. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, to whom belong all glory, honor, and majesty, world without end. Amen. For our lesson of the day, I will read from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling to you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that You would bless the proclamation of Your Word. We ask that Your Spirit work through the Word to deepen our faith, to make us more like Christ Jesus. This is our prayer in His name. Amen. Today, after bit of an absence, we return to the Gospel of Mark. We've been working our way through Mark, and from time to time, what I like to do as we make our way through a, a book of Scripture like this is step back and look at the big picture, some of the major themes that are there. We work through it a, a section at a time, but it's good, I think, from time to time to step back and look at the whole. And now that we are a little more than halfway through the Gospel, I figured this might be a good time to ask. What is the Gospel of Mark really about? What is the Gospel of Mark about and why should you care? In one sense, Mark seems totally irrelevant to the modern world. 
It might be easy to read through the Gospel of Mark and think that Mark was written to answer questions that nobody today is asking. Mark describes a world that seems utterly foreign to us. It seems strange to us, not only culturally, if you compare the first century to the 21st century, but spiritually it seems quite odd to us. Mark writes about demons and resurrection, but we have smartphones and flat screens. What could Mark possibly have to say to the modern world? Well, let me be very honest with you. I don't think Mark wants to speak to our world. I don't think Mark wants to speak to our world. I think he wants to change our world. That's why Mark wrote his Gospel. It's a world-changing message. It's not spoken into our world. Rather, Mark wrote his Gospel to bring in a new world. See, the message of Mark's Gospel can never be made to fit the status quo. All too often we talk about wanting to find things in the Bible that are relevant. Things in the Bible that will speak to us where we are today. But so often it seems the traffic only moves in one direction. We go to the Bible with our modern way of looking at things, our modern worldview, and we rummage around in the Scriptures trying to find things that seem relevant, that seem like they make sense to us. But in doing that, we assume that our world and our worldview is really the norm. And then we're just trying to fit the Bible into what we already know, what we already believe. With Mark, you just can't do that. Mark doesn't want you to do that with his Gospel. If Mark seems hard to understand, or if Mark seems irrelevant, the problem is not that we have smartphones. The problem is not that Mark talks about demons. It's not our technology that gets in the way. It's really our pride. It's our evil that blinds us to Mark's message. Mark doesn't want to be relevant to our world. Mark aims to change our world. Mark's not interested in engaging our world. He wants to conquer our world and bring in a new world. Think about our world. A world that seems to be dominated by greed by sexual perversion and family dysfunction. A world in which life is cheap and innocent blood is shed continually. A world of racial conflict. A world where thousands of young women can be trafficked. If you're comfortable in that world, if you're satisfied with that world, if you think that that is normal, the way things are is normal, if you think that the condition of our world and our culture and the worldview of our culture is just an unalterable fact, it's just the way things are, and so we have to always adjust ourselves to it, then no, Mark doesn't have anything to say to you. Mark is going to seem out of touch and impractical because Mark doesn't seek to speak to our world. He seeks to change our world. Indeed, he calls us into a new world. And so if you want to leave this world behind and enter into this new world, this new creation, Mark is for you. Mark will show you the way. How does Mark do this? Well, really, the shape of Mark's story shows us the shape our lives should take. The way of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is really a blueprint for the Christian life. Mark doesn't tell us. Mark shows us. He doesn't tell us who Jesus is. He shows us who 
Jesus is. For Mark, Jesus is as Jesus does. The identity of Jesus is revealed in His actions. And really you could say for Mark, the Christian life works the same way. Mark doesn't tell us how to live the Christian life. There aren't any big sermons in Mark where you have this straightforward instruction, here's how to live. Instead, Mark shows us. He shows us the way. See, what really holds all of this together in Mark, what, 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 what makes Mark work in this way to show us who Jesus is and show us how to live, there's one key phrase, key term in Mark that holds all of it together. It's that phrase, the way. Mark is about the way. It's about the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus must become our way. Because this is the way out of the old world and into the new world. The way out of how things are in their brokenness and their fallenness and the way into a glorious new creation. Fourteen times, I think that number is probably significant, fourteen times in Mark's Gospel he mentions the way. And every single one of these mentions of the way, sometimes it's translated as the road depending on your translation, but it's the way. I felt like if I said... If I talked about Jesus continually being on the road again, you would think I was talking about Willie Nelson. So uh, I'm going to stick with the way translation. Every single time Mark talks about the way, Jesus being on the way, it is heavily freighted with significance. Every single one of the mentions of the way is noteworthy. You know this is a key term in Mark's Gospel because right off the bat, it's there in his prologue in the opening verses. I'll remind you, in ancient books, they didn't have table of contents like we do in our books today. And so uh, quite often what an author would do is use his opening lines to tell you where he's going. In his opening lines, he would give you the whole trajectory of the story. Uh, the opening lines would function in a programmatic way to say, this is what's coming. This is what my book is about. And that's really what Mark does here. Mark opens this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he quotes from the prophets. In fact, it's actually a, a mishmash of language from Isaiah and from Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. So there's that language. Your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way. There it is again. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This language of the way of the Lord, it actually comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So we have to ask, what is the way of the Lord in Isaiah? When Isaiah talks about the way of the Lord, and Mark picks up on that and uses that to introduce his gospel, what's he talking about? Well, actually, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 address God's people when they were in bondage in exile. See, Israel fell into sin. And so God punished them for their sin. God sent pagan invaders to destroy their temple and their city and to enslave them and carry them away and scatter them throughout the pagan empire. And Isaiah is speaking to the people of God in that situation, that bleak, dark, and hopeless situation. And in the midst of that exile, God promises that even though Israel has been enslaved and carried away, there will be a new exodus. Indeed, Isaiah says it will be an exodus so much greater than the exodus out of Egypt that they're going to forget all about that. 
Think about that. The Exodus under Moses, that was really the defining event in Israel's history. That's how Israel identified herself. We're the people of the Exodus. Isaiah comes and says, there's going to be an Exodus so much greater than that, you forget all about the old Exodus. Isaiah 43, we read it this morning. Describes it in these terms. The Lord who made a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Think of the Red Sea crossing. The Lord making a way through the sea. The Lord who drew out the mighty chariots and horses. Think of Pharaoh's army. There they lay never to rise again. Forget the former things. That is, forget the old exodus as great as it was. Forget all about it. Do not dwell on the past. I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. God says He will make a new way. A new exodus for His people. Just before that, in Isaiah 42, it describes the Lord leading His people to salvation in this language. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will make darkness light for them. In other words, as the Lord carries out this new exodus, as He carves a way through the wilderness, His people will travel with Him. He will bring His people with Him and He will heal them. He will restore their sight so that they can see the path and walk in the way of the Lord with Him. They'll follow the Lord on this pathway to salvation. So when Mark opens his Gospel with a quotation about the way of the Lord from Isaiah 40, what is he doing? He's saying to us, now is the time. The new exodus is now happening. What God had promised to do to cut a pathway of salvation, that is now happening in Jesus. And of course, that means we've got to understand that Jesus as the Son of God is really the Lord in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. He's the one who's doing these things. It talked about the Lord's way in Isaiah, but now in Mark's Gospel, who is traveling that way? It's Jesus. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh incarnate. His way in Mark's Gospel is the way of the Lord. His way is the way of the new Exodus. So as you move through Mark's Gospel and you see Jesus gathering to Himself this group of followers, and as Jesus and His bedraggled little band of disciples walk to Jerusalem, Mark wants us to understand this is the promised new exodus. When Jesus and the twelve arrive in Jerusalem, this is the return of the Lord and His people to Zion. This is it. This is what Isaiah prophesied. See, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on the way. In fact, because Mark really wants us to understand the urgency of Jesus' mission, and how Jesus is a man who is constantly in motion. He uses another key term. He uses this word immediately. And so all throughout Mark's Gospel, in fact, it's used 42 times. I think that's also significant. 42 times Jesus acts immediately. Mark wants us to see Jesus is a man on the move. He is a man of action. He's a man on the warpath. 
He's going somewhere. There's this tremendous sense of urgency. And so everything in this Gospel happens at an accelerated pace. See, in Mark, Jesus has no time for leisurely sermons about the lilies of the field. He's got work to do, battles to fight, a journey to take. But He isn't going to wage war in just any conventional way. He's not going to bear arms. He's going to bear a cross. And Mark, by invoking this way of the Lord at the very beginning of His Gospel, calls that to our attention as well. Because right in the middle of all those prophecies in Isaiah about that glorious new exodus that is to come, right in the middle of that, in Isaiah 53, you've got this figure known as the suffering servant. Isaiah says he will be smitten by God. He will be afflicted. He will be wounded for the transgressions of his people, bruised for their iniquities, all in order to bring peace and healing to his people. And so when Mark quotes from Isaiah 40 in the opening verses of his Gospel, Mark is showing us Jesus' way. He's showing us Jesus' program. What He's going to do. He has come to make a way through the wilderness for God's people, leading them to salvation in this new exodus. But how is He going to accomplish that new exodus? By being the suffering servant. But it's interesting to note in Mark 1, Mark's not just quoting from a prophet singular. He quotes from prophets plural. And so actually you've got to dig around in the Old Testament to find what else Mark is referring to. The opening verse is not only a reference to Isaiah 40, it's also an allusion to another Old Testament prophet, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Let me put it in context for you. Malachi says this. Again, this is hundreds of years before Jesus. Behold, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to His temple. And who can endure the day of His coming? Malachi spoke of a messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord. That's obviously John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark who goes before Jesus. goes before Jesus really in two ways. One, getting the people ready by calling them to repentance. But also he goes before Jesus because he is murdered. He is beheaded by Herod. And that shows the way Jesus will go as well. He too will be martyred. He too will face death. Malachi says there will be this messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. And then it says that when the Lord comes, where will He go? He will arrive suddenly at His temple. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. The Lord incarnate. What does He do in Mark's Gospel? He makes a journey to the temple in Jerusalem. This is exactly the trajectory of Mark's Gospel. Jesus' way leads Him to the temple. And He finally arrives at the temple in Mark chapter 11. And so when Jesus arrives at the temple in Mark chapter 11, how are we to understand that? We're to understand this is the Lord coming to Zion as He prophesied. Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt. And Mark 11.8 says people laid down their clothes and they laid down leafy branches on the way as Jesus rode into the city. 
the Lord makes His way to the temple. And what does He do when He gets there? He goes in, He inspects the temple, and then He cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers. He temporarily shuts the temple down. Now that Malachi 3 passage that Mark quotes from the very beginning, it says when the Lord arrives at His temple, it's not going to be good news for Israel. It actually says no one will be able to stand in His presence. That's what happens when Jesus arrives. Everyone's driven out of the temple. It says in Malachi, the Lord will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, purifying the sons of Levi, purging them as silver and gold so they may make a righteous offering. And indeed, that is exactly what Jesus comes to Jerusalem to do. Only we need to understand, He comes to Jerusalem not as a temple reformer, but as a temple destroyer. Because you go a little further in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, He goes up on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and He predicts the destruction of the temple. The temple is going to be destroyed. And a new temple, a temple built out of Jesus' disciples, is going to take its place. Jesus' disciples will be the new temple. Jesus' disciples will be the new Levites offering acceptable sacrifices. His disciples will be and do what the temple was supposed to be and do. But there's more going on here. Certainly the Isaiah and the Malachi quotations, those are really important to understanding the way of the Lord, which is the way of Jesus. But there's more. In fact, this theme... Uh, the way is really most concentrated in the part of Mark that we're in right now. We've looked at some of these passages in detail already, some we haven't, but I want to walk you through Mark 8 through 10. Because this is the most concentrated section in terms of where we find the way referred to. In fact, seven of the 14 references to the way in Mark's gospel uh, occur in this section, Mark 8 through 10. Uh, This is really the main theme, you could say, that glues together this section of Mark's Gospel. It's the way. Uh, This section of Mark's Gospel is identified by a healing of a blind man in Mark 8 and a healing of another blind man in Mark 10 that marks off this section in Mark's Gospel. And what you see here is while Jesus is clearly mapping out the way, the way of salvation... His disciples are struggling to follow in that way. Indeed, even though they're on the way in one sense, they seem to have taken a detour off of the way in another sense. Let me take you through this and really listen closely to references to the way here. In Mark 8.27, Jesus and His disciples are on the way, Mark tells us. And on the way, Jesus asks them, Who do men say that I am? And then who do you say? That I am. And of course, Peter answers correctly. He says, You are the Christ. And then Jesus begins to explain what that means. Because he is the Christ, he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to play the part of the suffering servant Isaiah spoke of. But Peter thinks, Surely there must be some misunderstanding here. Surely this is not going to happen to the Messiah. Surely God's not going to let the Messiah suffer in this way. And so he begins to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus has to rebuke him back in turn. But you see what's happening. The disciples are on the way with Jesus. Where is that way leading? 
It's leading to the cross. It's leading to Jerusalem where Jesus will lay down His life as a sacrifice for His disciples as the suffering servant. The disciples are on the way traveling with Jesus, journeying with Jesus, but they're really not on the way at all. Jesus knows the way is leading to the cross. The disciples are on that way with Him, but they have no idea where they're going. In fact, they think the destination can't be a cross. It can't be a place of suffering and death because certainly God would not let that happen to His Messiah. Well, they continue on. We come in chapter 9. Mark again says that Jesus and His disciples are on the way. They arrive in Capernaum. Jesus has just told them again that He's going to be betrayed and killed when they get to Jerusalem. And then He asks His disciples a question. He says, what were you arguing about on the way? So, we're on the way to the cross where I'm going to suffer and die for you. What were you guys disputing about on the way? Well, Mark 9.34 says the disciples kept silence because on the way, Mark is just continually calling attention to this, on the way, they had argued amongst themselves over who would be the greatest, who would be the most glorious when the kingdom comes. Now, once again, the disciples are on the way, but they're not really on the way. They're following Jesus without following Him at all. His way is leading to the cross, They think it's leading to greatness. They think it's leading straight to glory. He's saying His way ends in death. They're arguing over which one of them will rule over the others when they get to where they're going. They just don't understand. For them, of course, the cross would be a terrible detour off the way to glory. For Jesus, the cross is not a dead end at all. It's actually His appointed destination and the culmination of His mission. It's how He will accomplish the new exodus and deliver God's people. See, even when Jesus hands His disciples a map and says, this is where we're going, they don't get it. They miss what the way is all about. We'll continue on in Mark's Gospel. What do we find? Mark chapter 10. There is a wealthy young man who comes running up to Jesus as Jesus is on the way. So again, Jesus is on the way to the cross. This rich young man runs up to Him and he poses a question to Jesus. A very good question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do to be a part of the new Exodus community? What must I do to enter into the way of salvation. Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, yes, Jesus, I've already done that. And so Jesus says, go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Then take up your cross and follow me. The implication being follow me on the way. Follow me where I'm going. In other words, Jesus says to the man, die to your wealth. Sacrifice your possessions. Crucify your greed. Put your idols to death. Follow me in the way. Follow me where I am going. And then you will find eternal life. But because this young man had such great possessions, because he couldn't stand to part with them, he didn't enter into the way, 
Instead, he went away sad. His pride, his love of his stuff, kept him from entering the way. The way of the Lord, the way of the new exodus, the way of salvation, the way of the cross. After the rich young man leaves, Jesus and his disciples are on the way again in chapter 10, verse 32. They're on the way to Jerusalem again where Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus is going ahead of them. They're following Jesus. He again begins to tell them what's going to happen. So he says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. There's the destination. That's where the way leads. And he says, the Son of Man will be betrayed and condemned and delivered to the Gentiles to die. That's what's going to happen when they arrive at their destination. But again, the disciples just seem to miss it altogether. Even though they're on the way with Jesus, they really aren't. Because right after this, two of the disciples, James and John, come up to Jesus and demand that Jesus give to them whatever they ask. They want the best places in His kingdom. They want to be seated on His right and on His left when Jesus comes into His kingdom. They've missed it. They've missed the way they don't yet understand that Jesus will bring in His kingdom through His cross. They don't see that while, yes, Jesus is marching towards His enthronement in Jerusalem, they don't understand that enthronement is going to happen on the cross when He wears a crown of thorns. And who's going to be on the right and the left of Jesus when He comes into His kingdom? Two thieves who are crucified along with Him. And that's why Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. The disciples need to understand the kingdom is not going to be established without the cross or even in spite of the cross, but through the cross. It is through Jesus suffering on the cross that the kingdom will be established. The way to the kingdom is the cross. The way to the kingdom is humble suffering and sacrifice. We carry on. Jesus approaches Jericho. Now He's getting really close to Jerusalem. And there He meets a blind man named Bartimaeus. And He restores Bartimaeus' sight, which is exactly what Isaiah prophesied. Remember Isaiah 42.16. It says, on this new Exodus way, as the Lord goes, He will heal the blindness of the blind and He will make darkness light to those who follow Him. And that's what Jesus does for Bartimaeus here. But look carefully at how this story begins and ends. We read it because I really wanted you to see this. It's such a great example of this. As Jesus and the disciples come to Jericho, Bartimaeus is sitting beside the way. So he's not on the way with Jesus. He's not on the way to the cross at this point. He's beside the way. He cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus restores his sight. And then in verse 52, Jesus says, Go your own way. Your faith has made you well. And the story concludes this way. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Bartimaeus can now see. He can see the way. He can see Jesus. And so he follows. He was beside the way when he was blind. He couldn't see Jesus or the way. Now his sight has been restored. Jesus says, go your own way. But it turns out his own way is really 
Jesus' way. That's the way He wants to travel. He wants to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. What the disciples with their sight can't see where this way is leading, Bartimaeus, having his sight restored, can now see and perceive. The way of the Lord, Mark refers to in the opening verses of his Gospel, is the way of the new exodus. It's the way He will bring deliverance to His people. Mark tells us that right off the bat. As the Gospel progresses, as this Gospel unfolds, we find more and more about this way of the Lord. We find ultimately the way of the Lord is not just the way of the new exodus, it's the way of the kingdom. And we find that this way of the Lord, which is the way of the kingdom, which is the way of the new exodus, is also the way of the cross. We find that this new exodus will be affected by a new Passover sacrifice as Jesus' blood is shed, as He gives His life as a ransom for His people. And again, Isaiah foretold all of this. Again, in the midst of describing the Lord's way through the sea and through the desert, in the midst of describing the glories of the new exodus to liberate His people, Isaiah talked about the way of a suffering servant who would suffer and die. If the disciples only could have pieced it together, if they only could have pieced it together, they would have understood the cross is not a detour off the way. It is the way. The way to the cross is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is the way of the kingdom. It is the way of salvation. The way of the Lord is the way He saves His people. So important to see this. You know, during His ministry, people recognized Jesus as teaching what they called the way of God in truth. That's actually how a Pharisee puts it in Mark chapter 12, verse 14. We perceive that you teach the way of God in truth. But Mark wants us to see so much more. Jesus doesn't merely teach the way of God in truth. He doesn't merely teach the way to salvation. He paves the way to salvation. Indeed, as He says in John 14, He is the way to salvation. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the way to the Father. And if He's the way to the Father, then He is the way of life and the way of wisdom and the way of joy and the way of truth and the way of glory. Because He went the way of death, He is the way of life. Because He went the way of the cross, He is the way to eternal glory. And so we trust Him. We entrust our lives to Him. But you need to understand that's not all. It's very interesting. You read through the book of Acts. You know what one of the earliest names given to the church is in the book of Acts? The church in the book of Acts is referred to as the way. Before we were even known as Christians, we were known as the way in Acts 9, 19, 22, 24, again and again. It's very common in the book of Acts for Christians to be referred to as the way. You know, we have all these different ways of talking about the church. We talk about the church as the covenant community or the body of Christ or the bride of Christ or the temple. We need to talk about the church as the way as well. And I think we don't do that because we don't want to obscure the fact that really it's Jesus Himself who is the way, and that's true. He's the way in an utterly unique sense. 
Why then does Acts refer to the church as the way? Well, it's precisely because we are the ones who follow in the way of Jesus, which is the way of salvation, it's the way of the cross, it's the way of the kingdom. We are of the way. Our lives are determined by this way, by the way of the cross. We carry the cross as we walk through life. That's why we are of the way, because we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, as it were. See, in Mark's Gospel, the disciples are on the way with Jesus, but they often don't understand what that means. They're learning as they go. And it's easy for us to look at the disciples and think, how dumb can you be, really? But you know, the truth is, we're in the same position. We're on the way, and yet a lot of times we don't know where the way is leading. We don't like where the way is going. Being a Christian means journeying further and further along the way of the cross. Again, you know, as people have wondered, Mark's Gospel has so much about discipleship, and yet it doesn't have any explicit instructions or sermons of Jesus to the disciples. And so, how does Mark want us to understand what the Christian life should look like? You don't have a, a sermon on the mount here or any other big block of instruction. How, how can you learn how to be a disciple from Mark's Gospel? Mark doesn't tell you what the Christian life should look like. He shows you. And He shows you by showing you the way of Jesus. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is the way of salvation. But His way is also a model for action. A model for imitation. And so it's as though Mark has given us the way of Jesus and then overlaying that, you have the way of the disciples. And Mark is saying, you should follow in the same way, the same pathway as Jesus Himself. Oh sure, you're going to struggle with that at times. Sometimes along the way, we're still going to have arguments about who's the greatest. And we're going to get tangled up in arguments over status rather than just serving one another. And sure, there are times where riches are going to pose a temptation to us as they did for the rich young ruler. There are times where we're going to get stuck in a rut of selfishness the way James and John did when they came making their demand. We have to see those are all detours. Those are little rabbit trails off the way. The true way of the Christian life is the way Jesus Himself lived. And if you are a Christian, that is the path you're called to walk. That pathway is often difficult. I think it's been said rightly, wisely. Jesus does not prepare the way for the disciples. He prepares the disciples for the way. The way is supposed to be challenging. It's not supposed to be easy. It is the way of the cross after all. It's a way that as you travel, you're going to find the old you dying and a new you coming to life more and more. And you're going to find the only way to make progress along this way is by taking up your cross. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to carry your cross with you each step along the way. I think this is so important. You know, I think sometimes for us as Presbyterians, I think we're pretty good at taking up our Bibles. I don't think we're nearly as good at taking up our crosses. We're pretty good at taking up our Bibles. We like to study. We like to learn. 
You know, I, I think sometimes Presbyterians are really just the brains of the body of Christ. You know, we're kind of the think tank within the church. And that's good. It's good to know the Bible. It's good to take up the Bible. But it's not good enough. We've got to take up our crosses as well. We're called to put into practice the things we know. And so it's how we live. It's how we serve. It's how we sacrifice. Knowledge that does not translate into loving action only puffs up and makes us prideful. The Christian life is not just a matter of affirming certain propositions or arguing certain positions. The Christian life is the cross. And that means sometimes you need to just keep what you know to yourself and keep your mouth shut and just serve. It means there are times when you're going to really need to look at those around you, people around you, and identify needs that you can do something about. Find those needs. Go meet those needs. That's how we bear one another's burdens. And bearing one another's burdens is a way of bearing the cross. That's how the church becomes the way. That's how we walk the same path Jesus traveled. As Jesus went along the way, what did He do? He continually served those around Him. Ask yourself, when's the last time you did something for somebody that you didn't really want to do? It was a real sacrifice and yet you did it cheerfully. Now, I know for some of you, that's going to be you know as recently as this morning, you know, in the last few minutes. But for others of us, it might have been quite a while since we did something for someone outside of our circle of family and friends. It may have been a while since we did something for somebody we really didn't want to do, but we made ourselves do it anyway because there was a need and we decided to do something about it. We decided to do something about it cheerfully. See, that's how you learn to crucify your flesh. Every step down this pathway of following Jesus can only be taken as you deny yourself, as you put yourself to death and say, I'm going to serve others. I'm going to consider others better than myself. That's how you progress down this path. The way of the Lord is the way of the new exodus. It's the way of the kingdom. It's the way of the cross. We can say too, it's the way of wisdom. All throughout the Bible's wisdom literature, it talks about two ways. Well, the way Jesus went is the way of wisdom over and against the way of foolishness. But of course, we see again and again as Jesus goes this way of wisdom, He's really turning the wisdom of the world upside down. Jesus uniquely traveled this way as our Savior. But now, our lives are to conform to this pattern. His way must more and more become our way. We must become humble servants. And understand, Jesus is not saying, look, instead of reigning, I want you to serve. Nor is He even saying, serve now so you can reign later. No, Jesus is saying, reign by servant. This is how you'll share in my kingdom and in my glory is by laying your life down for the sake of others and serving them. In service, there is great glory and power. And so if you want to be a part of Mark's Gospel program, to not just speak to the world, but to change the world, to bring in a whole new world, 
if you want to conquer the world that is and bring in this glorious new creation, this is how you do it. You walk in the way of the cross. I'll just give you a couple really quick examples here. What are some ways we can do this? Here's one. Find someone you can mentor or someone you can disciple. The Bible has a lot to say about older men teaching younger men or older women teaching younger women. That's because older saints have been on this way longer. They're further down the path. And they can share what they've learned along the journey. An aspect of being a disciple is making disciples. An aspect of being disciple of being a disciple is discipling others. So if you find your, you know, if you look around this room and you discover, oh, there are a lot of people here who are younger than I am. One thing you ought to think about doing is finding ways to offer yourself and your wisdom to others. If you look around this room and there's a lot of people here who are older than you, you know what you ought to think? You ought to. This is how you walk in the way of the cross. You humble yourself and you say, you know what? I probably need some mentoring and some discipling from others. I need to listen to those who are older and wiser than me. I need their insights if I'm going to travel further down this way of holiness and wisdom. That's one way. Mentoring and discipling relationships. Here's another way. Hospitality. Opening your home and welcoming others in, especially those outside of your normal comfort zone of friends and family. I bet every single one of you, if you were to look around this room, I bet you can all find people you don't know, or at least people you don't know well. Do something about that. And one of the best ways to do something about that is what we call hospitality. Literally, hospitality is love for strangers. Not just friends and family. It's love for people who are different from you. People who seem strange to you. People who may not have very much in common with you. People that you don't know well. And understand hospitality doesn't have to be fancy. Don't confuse hospitality with entertaining, as so many Southerners do. It doesn't have to be expensive or elaborate. You can do it at the last minute. But hospitality is so important. Simply inviting people into your life and into your home, it's a form of service. Every time you do that, it's a step down the way of the cross. It's a step down that path. It's a kingdom building action. It takes effort. You've got to put yourself out there to do it. It takes some work. But it's work. Because it brings in this new world. See, Jesus has blazed a trail of salvation for us. He traveled the way of the Lord all the way to the cross. What are we to do? We are to trust Him. And we are to follow Him in that way, that pattern of life. For that is the way of salvation and the way of the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that Jesus has accomplished our salvation full and free. We thank You that now, by His power at work in us through the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to walk down His path. This pathway of holiness and wisdom. This pathway that so often feels like death but leads to life. Oh Lord, help us to, to take another step, to continue in that path as we put ourselves to death so that Christ might live in us and through us. This we pray in His name. Amen.